You're listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, I'm speaking with Dr. Nassim Asafi. Dr. Asafi is a physician, teacher, novelist, content creator, health tech consultant, TED fellow, and civic innovator who enjoys living at the intersection of many worlds. Her doctoring is a blend of internal medicine, gynecology, psychiatry, human rights, and public health. Her consulting work ranges from primary health strategies for the low-income world to health tech startups and human rights medicine. Not to mention she's traveled to over 50 countries and has taken nine professional sabbaticals. I wanted to speak to Dr. Asafi because I think her work and insight are valuable to better understand the current state of the world under the COVID-19 global pandemic. I'm speaking to Dr. Asafi from Rabat, Morocco, where she's currently living, a country that's taking a very authoritative approach to virus mitigation. In that same vein, during our conversation, Dr. Asafi and I discussed the benefits and detriments of authoritarian and democratic approaches to virus mitigation. Dr. Asafi shares how this pandemic is vastly different from 9-11, as well as the financial crisis of 2008. As a physician and public health professional, Dr. Asafi helps us understand the nuances of transmission of COVID-19, as well as how this pandemic can be seen as a wake-up call for us and how we should reconsider policies and philosophies on a societal level, as well as on an individual level. Lastly, Dr. Asafi shares with us her philosophy on how we can better navigate this time of uncertainty and to remember how the most vulnerable members of our society should not be forgotten. It is with great pleasure that I bring you Dr. Nassim Asafi. Nassim Asafi, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much, Baktash. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, you're speaking to us in the context of what's happening in the world in this global pandemic with COVID-19 in Morocco. Yes. I'm currently in Rabat, Morocco. Great. Now, what exactly is that like right now, speaking to us from there? Well, this is day 17 of sheltering in place with a pretty Mm -hmm. authoritarian confirmation of the sheltering in place. or It feels kind of like house arrest. Uh, We have one to three month prison sentences for being outside if you're not officially allowed to be outside and you're allowed to go for grocery shopping, for medical care and to the pharmacy and if your work is considered essential. But every time you go out, you have to have a written piece of paper that gets officiated by the state. Wow. So it's pretty serious. I mean, we're in a way, we're the China of Africa right now. And um, it's been getting increasingly serious. So initially, it started out with the kind of social distancing you're probably familiar with in the States that gave you more personal choice in how you enforced it. And then schools out, gatherings canceled, everything shuttered, curfew at 6 p.m., it feels like pretty serious house arrest. It's so interesting to think about how each country reacts differently to the coronavirus, right? So 
China essentially tracks all of its citizens, right? Hungary becomes a dictatorship. The United States gives money to its businesses. And the Russians deny the fact that there isn't even a problem. There's a problem, right? And so what you're sharing is mm-hmm. Morocco's taking this authoritative sort of path as well. Right. So Morocco is led primarily by a king who's quite liked. <laughs> And he shares some power with a prime minister and an Islamic party. But really, at the end of the day, the king is calling the shots. And he's a smart man, and he's a man who believes in science. And he's well aware, like any leader who understands science, that our only hope of getting through this with a minimum of casualties is to seriously try to contain the virus, mitigate its spread, prepare our health systems to deal with it so that we don't overwhelm our hospital infrastructure, so that we don't kill our healthcare workers because they're not protected, so that we can adequately test people and um, find out who's immune and then delay the rise in infection until we have therapeutics and hopefully soon enough a vaccine. Yeah. I think maybe also too right now, Nassim, it'd be a great time to kind of get into exactly what you do. And could you kindly describe what it is that you do? (laughs) Sure. By training, I am a human rights and global health physician. I am also a strategic leader at the executive level and a global health person in general. I curate content particularly in the health, medicine, science, and humanitarianism realm. And I'm also a health tech consultant. On the side, for fun, I write novels and do other creative projects. So I'm a bit all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are. There's so many different paths to go down now with this. So now, if that's the case, then how did you find yourself on the path of medicine? Like, What was the spark that led you down that path? Well, as you probably know, Bakhtosh, when you come from the kind of immigrant background that we come from, you have three choices in life. You can be a doctor, an engineer, or a failure. And that's basically the options that I was presented with growing up. Luckily, I loved science. I liked people and I wanted to be of service to the world. So it turns out medicine was a really good fit for me. But honestly, I was a compliant little girl who was heavily encouraged by her parents to pursue medicine. And that's where I found myself. So you in many ways have had the opportunity to essentially take sabbaticals, right? Take years off during your training. What were some interesting experiences that you had throughout your medical training where you thought to yourself, right, I need a break. I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. Could you tell us some of those things that you've done during those breaks? Sure. So between the ages of, let's see, 17 and 47, so a 30-year time span, I've actually taken nine sabbaticals about every three or four years. And it started out because I absorbed all the hopes and dreams of my immigrant parents and raced through school. So I actually graduated from college at age 18. Wow. And started college at age 13. I actually had, maybe you could count my first sabbatical before (laughs) then, 
when I took an extra year of college. So that was my first sabbatical. And then I spent a year after college going to Iran for the first time as an adult. Then took a research year in the midst of medical school, did another year of global health at the end of medical school. And then after being a faculty member of a medical university, I then went to Afghanistan for a couple of years and started a global health track. And after Afghanistan, I went to Cuba and studied music and became a writer. And after that, I ended up in Turkey on another kind of sabbatical. And I even count as a sabbatical uh, the decision to have a child on my own and become a single mother. And then finally, Mm -hmm. at age 45, my last sabbatical, um, Mm -hmm. before sabbatical became a way of living, I went on a midlife, if I'm lucky, sabbatical between ages 45 and 46. So that's the spectrum of sabbaticals. Fascinating, Nassim. Can we start with asking the question of what it was like to go back to Iran for you? Yeah, it was incredibly emotional and actually... The way I felt is pretty much portrayed in my first novel, Arya, when the protagonist, who's a deracinated Iranian, unlike me, who's quite connected to her roots, goes back for the first time. And it's just overwhelming. It's an emotional homecoming, but it's also the first time and place where I felt utterly American. (laughs) All my life living in the States, I'd felt Iranian. And then suddenly, after being in Iran at age 18 to 19, I spent six months there doing public health research. I connected to my family. I basically learned the language, which was somewhere in the deep recesses of my brain, but hadn't been spoken in, I don't know, 17 years. And really connected to the region. But at the same time, realized I'm not 100% Iranian. I'm a real hybrid between American and Iranian. And perhaps I will never feel fully at home in either place. That's a really interesting phenomenon. I too have that sense of feeling when I went back to Afghanistan for the first time. I tell people I've never felt more American than when I was living in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then I've never felt more Afghan than when living in the United States. Right? Exactly. You completely get it. (laughs) My solution is now to be in a third country, (laughs) which is really similar to the country of origin culturally. So for me, that's been a place like Turkey or Morocco or Afghanistan, where I can also comfortably be a Westerner and an American. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the combination which has allowed me to feel most at home and most comfortable. Now, do you think that happens, Nassim, because whether you're living in Cuba, Turkey, or Morocco, do you feel like that sense of judgment of you not being Moroccan uh, makes you feel like there's a sense of freedom that you had, where otherwise in Iran or the United States, there's almost like a sense of expectation and or judgment that comes with being an American or being an Iranian? Does does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I never thought about it as judgment, but In both Iran and in the U.S., some parts of me are deeply insider. And when you're an insider, (laughs) you are more likely to get, you know, some of those judgments, whether it's from your family or from people at large. And when you're in a third country where you don't necessarily speak the language perfectly, there's a lot of judgment that you escape perhaps because you don't even understand what's happening around you. (laughs) So you live in this idyllic bubble at times 
Um, it's really humbling and it's really fun and exciting and it's a deep learning experience mm-hmm. where you don't always know what's going on, but a part of you also feels deeply comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, because this is, you know, this is near and dear to my heart, is you went to Afghanistan, you've been a couple times, so I'd love to know what your thoughts and your experience was like in Afghanistan before the surge of 2010. Can you kind of talk about that experience with us? Sure. I first went to Afghanistan in 2003. It was a medical mission with the American Medical Women's Association, And they had given me a small fund to investigate on the ground if the Taliban's suppression of women and women's reproductive health was as bad as they had heard from the outside. And so I went and immediately I was incredibly moved to want to be there long term because here was a country so near to Iran that felt so culturally proximate to me, where I could understand the language with a little bit of training. I came from a similar religion. The people on the streets, they looked like my relatives. And yet, through historic events and some bad luck and not having quite the resources of Iran in terms of natural resources, they'd lived a completely different fate. And here was a country where women's health and women's education were among the worst in the world. And I was an educator and a women's health specialist. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how could I not move here to try and help? So I had been a happy academic at the University of Washington Medical School. And I really loved my job working in a county hospital that was serving urban vulnerables, immigrants and refugees. And I decided to leave it and moved to Afghanistan and figured out which was the NGO that was having the biggest health impact at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was Management Sciences for Health. So I rearranged my entire life and moved there and worked on a big project that was funded by USAID in 2004 and five and then left toward the end of 2005. And then later I came back in 2009 working with the Johns Hopkins-oriented NGO called Japaigo, working on um, maternal health and the role of midwives in reducing maternal mortality. Oh, that's curious. Now, during your experience there, what did you learn about, I have to ask, this idea and this feeling of loss and grief? Because you're dealing with the most vulnerable population in a country that has just been completely at that point still completely ruined by war. Exactly. So what did you learn about what it meant to, to be human in the context of loss and grief? I learned that humans are incredibly resilient. And if you invest in them and their personal development and give them some semblance of hope, they can emerge from, from the darkest periods of life. They can. Not to say that everybody who has depression, anxiety, or PTSD can be fully cured. I think a lot of times um, grief and trauma can live with you long term. But there are ways of coping and growing and moving beyond it. Mm-hmm. You know, and in those early days of 2003, 4, 5, there was just so much hope. We had this possibility of reconstructing the healthcare system from scratch because it had been so 
decimated in war. Mm-hmm. And there was so much funding and global solidarity between nations and also with the Afghan Ministry of Health to rebuild mm-hmm. this country and its health system. And in many ways, it was an unprecedented uh, humanitarian success. Mm-hmm. You know, still to this day, there are many things in the healthcare system that are working much, much better than before the international community was there. Mm-hmm. So there have been a lot of progress, but unfortunately, security <laughs> is really one of the most fundamental <laughs> forces in human life. And without security, you can't have anything, even if you have healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, uh, security is hijacking the health situation in Afghanistan yeah. and continued war is. But those, those early days were... Um, hopeful. And I did see a real difference in people who were dealing with grief and trauma and even psychiatric conditions. In fact, in our basic package of health services, mental health was considered among the essential pillars. So it was Mm -hmm. very much a part of the health strategy, which you don't often see in global public health. No, that's actually quite curious. I mean, even in the context of a, in, in the cultural context of Afghanistan, to discuss mental health is actually something that's relatively new. Right. Right. To actually begin to have the conversation about what it means to have a mental health issue is something that's actually quite novel in the context of a place like Afghanistan. Right. So, right. how does it, I mean, think about it too, like when an entire country deals mm-hmm. with collective trauma. Mm-hmm. Right over these years and years of war, how is it that you know that you have a problem when everybody essentially is dealing with the same problem? Right. Right. I mean, it's it has an incredibly high level of psychological and psychiatric morbidity, is the clinical way of talking about that problem. And by the way, when I was there, there were seven psychiatrists in the whole country. You know, so there's no way that you have the medical specialties to try to treat the conditions, even the most serious, sick, schizophrenic, actively hallucinating patients would not see a psychiatrist. So there had to be more of a community health-based approach. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Mm -hmm. It worked. I mean, I'm not saying that you don't still need to have a psychiatrist and medications prescribed, but there are a lot of psychosocial things you can do from active listening support, acknowledging these problems that Mm -hmm. can be incredibly effective. Yeah, I have a dear friend and uh, colleague, her name's uh, Zarlash Halamzai. She runs uh, an organization called the Refugee Trauma Initiative, where she and her colleagues facilitate and or foster a sense of community in refugee camps in, in Greece to refugees who are dealing with mental health issues and what they essentially do is just quite literally create the space in which people can discuss the things that they experienced Mm -hmm. and to know that it's not their fault and to know that things will get better as long as they're able to kind of voice the things that are going on in their minds. Right. I think by virtue of being alive and having been able to transcend a border, they're showing how resilient they are. And I've also worked with refugees a great deal. And if they have a sense once they arrive that they have a future to look forward to, that they can be a part of this new country, that they can work, that they can build a life and contribute to those who they've left behind, 
you find that their mental health problems dissolve rather quickly. That's really curious, Nassim. So let's let's talk about that. Is it fair to say then, if a human being is in a place of complete uncertainty, they almost in many ways don't know how to attach themselves to a sense of hope, whereby once they get to an environment that has a semblance of certainty, then they're able to essentially start building? Is there any truth to what I just said? I think uncertainty is very hard on the human psyche. And I think that's what we're living right now, by the way, in this period of COVID-19. So the refugee who is in transit, who is waiting, who doesn't know if he or she is going to be able to end up in a country where he or she desires to live, where he or she may have family or friends, is in a very different psychological space from one who has arrived in Germany or Sweden or Canada or the United States, is with a family member and can then rebuild their life. Uncertainty is hard. And actually, in my midlife sabbatical at age 45, I decided intentionally to embrace uncertainty and see what would happen. Really? Um, and And it's a really uncomfortable feeling, at least it was for me, for someone who likes a sense of intention and control and and knowing my direction. Of course, it was from a very privileged place, Mm -hmm. but it was an experiment for me. And I learned to become comfortable with uncertainty. Oh, that's really fascinating. So can we unpack what that means? Why did you decide to do it at the age of 45? Like, What did you feel like was necessary in order for you to basically take that step? As I told you before, I have this habit of taking sabbaticals. Mm. I had wanted to figure out if I am lucky at age 45, I'll live another 45 years. So if I'm lucky with my good genes and don't have any major accidents, perhaps I'll live a health span of 90 years. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. ask myself, what do I want to do next? Am I sure that what I'm doing now is where I want to be? Mm-hmm. And for once, I didn't plan what I would do on the sabbatical. I had some basic outlines. I had values. And I decided I really wanted to go with the flow more than anything and see what would happen. And I made some loose plans. And most of those plans ended up not happening. Um, and what happened was amazing. And it has changed my life since then. And I am actually now living in Morocco because of an accident of this sabbatical. So let's get this straight. So your embracing of uncertainty was a transformational experience such that has it been able to kind of help you better deal with what's happening now with this global pandemic with COVID-19? I like to think so. I think that if you practice uncomfortable emotions like anxiety or uncertainty or vulnerability. And if you do it under favorable circumstances, it helps you deal with it when it arises again in life. So I embraced uncertainty during my midlife sabbatical year. And it showed me that even though I don't like emotional vulnerability and I do like a sense of control and I do like to know what direction I'm moving in, that I'm actually fine with uncertainty as long as the general circumstances around it are not devastating, 
right? So I think that familiarity and sense of confidence around how I perform in an uncertain situation has helped during this COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Although certainly this is an experience that none of us who are alive have ever had, right? And it's an unprecedented public health crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen since 1918. It is unprecedented. And what's really, really unique about this is that the whole world is dealing with it, right, Nassim? That's right. That's right. Nothing specific to one country that stays within one country's borders. It's quite literally the thing that's consuming all of us and that's going to affect all of us. What exactly makes COVID-19 unique? What exactly is different about this than AIDS, Ebola, SARS, all the other things that we've been dealing with? Right. So I would say the, the closest proximate experience for us is something like HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, or Ebola, um, maybe SARS or MERS as well. But what makes this different, this is a coronavirus. It's the seventh known coronavirus that uh, transmits to humans. It's not the most dangerous one. <laughs> Both um, SARS has an almost 10% fatality rate and MERS is above 30%. But what makes this particular coronavirus, which is called SARS coronavirus 2, um, SARS-CoV-2 for short, or just the novel coronavirus, which is easier to say, what makes it particularly dangerous for us as a species, society, and even a planet is that it's very easily transmissible between humans Mm -hmm. and that the peak period of transmission may be while the humans are asymptomatic. Right, So you can transmit this virus when you don't even know you're ill. With something like Ebola, it's harder to transmit. And when you do get ill, you are so ill that you really cut off your relations and you don't transmit it to as many people. Mm -hmm. But this virus is transmitted by contact and in a respiratory way. Mm -hmm. Um, Currently, the official... World Health Organization line is that it is not transmitted by aerosol. It's transmitted in the air if you're close to someone or if they cough or sneeze on you or if you've been in that space within three hours or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there is some debate around that and there is some nuance between respiratory droplet and aerosol transmission. Anyway, there's a lot we don't know about this virus, even though we know a lot about the other six coronaviruses, and we're all learning around at the same time. There's never been this level of global collaboration and solidarity in terms of science and public health before either. So it's really exciting. (laughs) It's incredibly worrisome because Mm -hmm. it's going to be the vulnerable and marginalized people the poorer countries who are going to see the biggest burden of this disease, as usual. Yeah. Um, but also that this virus does not discriminate, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now, Nassim, is it the actual virus or is it the immune system's response to it? What exactly is going on? Can you help us understand a little bit? Sure. 
So this novel coronavirus starts infesting the nose and the mouth, the pharynx, right? And then if it's going to be a mild disease, it can stay there. It can be like a head cold Mm -hmm. or a very bad kind of flu because you do have uh, fever and you do have body aches and you feel tired and all of that. But the more dangerous cases are when it becomes a full-on pneumonia. And pneumonia, you can have an acute respiratory distress syndrome where you have what's called a cytokine storm, where the immune system gets overly activated and basically causes a deadly pneumonia that requires you to have mechanical ventilation or be intubated Mm -hmm. and causes all kinds of organ failure elsewhere. For instance, cardiac problems, renal failure, liver failure, etc. So yeah, usually it's not a virus on its own, you know, that's just living in your cells that's causing the problem. It's what happens in your body in reaction to having such a virus, right? And, And the havoc that it wreaks on your system. So is it fair to say that if somebody does get treatment, that then likelihood of essentially surviving this thing is quite high? Well, we are lucky right now in this current form of the virus that most people around 80% have what we call mild disease. And again, the mild disease might make you feel terrible, (laughs) but you're not going to need hospital treatment. And in some cases, people really don't feel it at all. We don't know enough about the asymptomatic or very mild cases until we get better and more wide testing available. In about 15 to 20% of cases, people need hospitalized care. Mm-hmm. And a certain percentage of those, which are going to differ between countries, you can say between 5 and 18% are going to need intensive care unit level care. Why is it then that some countries were able to essentially, you know, flatten the curve whereby other places they're not able to? What exactly is the, the differentiating factor there, Nassim? Well, first is that we had an opportunity to learn about what this virus was going to do to us by looking at the case studies of China, Singapore, Korea, and then Iran and Italy, right? So really had a head start because the virus, I believe, got to Washington State at the very end of January, whereas this has been going on in China in December. And Unfortunately, the United States, the United Kingdom, and other countries didn't take it very seriously. There is some criticism of the Chinese regime for trying to suppress global knowledge of this virus and not have it impact its economy. And then you had the whistleblower doctors who really alerted us and did us a great human favor, letting us know what was happening. But once that happened, it appears that China has been much more transparent about sharing what has happened. Certainly, Italy has been. And in Iran, there hasn't been full transparency, although they have an excellent public health system and good relations Mm -hmm. with the World Health Organization. So I think it's partly human nature to be in denial initially. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. And even those of us who've studied public health and infectious disease have known that this was coming. It's still hard as a human to integrate 
what it's going to mean for us. So I think some of it is human and, you know, going through the stages of grief and and denial and anger. Um, And then others have to do with how quickly and how well they understand and embrace science. And we soon came to see that if you don't adopt these physical distancing measures, what's called social distancing, but I like to call it physical distancing because we, do, we don't need to be socially distant while we are being physically distant. Um, I think that's right, yeah. While we adopt these physical distancing measures and the more serious and restrictive ones, we have a chance of what's called flattening the curve of the exponential growth of this virus until our public health systems, our hospital infrastructure, our science, you know, testing for the virus, testing for conversion to immunity, testing for therapeutics and a vaccine catch up with us. Mm -hmm. If we don't adopt these extreme measures, which we have adopted in Morocco, we're going to quickly overwhelm our healthcare system to the point of collapse, which will also then collapse the economy. And it will be a true disaster with millions and millions and millions of deaths. If we adopt these more authoritarian measures, I hate to say it as a freedom-loving person, we have a chance of mitigating the destructive impact of this virus. No, I think that nuanced response is actually quite necessary. There is a benefit for authoritative regimes in the sense that they're able to essentially contain this thing a lot better than the United States, for example, which is, as you well know, it's hard for political leaders and governors and and people that are in positions of decision-making authority to tell Americans that they can't go out, that they're in complete quarantine, or that there's a shelter-in-place policy that's happening nationwide. Right. And so the concern is, is that we here in the United States still haven't even peaked yet. Right. It turns out that cultures that are highly individualistic, like the United States, where, as you said earlier, you know, freedom is a core part of our psyche and value and libertarian sense of being in the world, it turns out that those are less effective countries for quick collective public health measures, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the whole world is quickly waking up to the fact that they have all got to adopt the Chinese-like response to this if they have a chance of lessening the disaster of this virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's really interesting is hearing many people talk about this pandemic, it's very negative. It's very negative. And they're, Dr. Fauci and others are talking about how in context of the United States, there could be up to 200,000 deaths related to this, Right. Um, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, right? So I have mm-hmm. to ask you, as somebody who has been in this state of embracing transformational uncertainty and <laughs> who's been to multiple, multiple, multiple countries from all over the world, Nassim, what's not being discussed as part of this narrative that, that you feel like should be included? That's a great question, Bektosh. I read today somewhere, I wish I could cite the source because I love this sentence, is that viral capitalism has met its match in this viral pandemic. (laughs) So I think it's a reckoning moment to really stop, especially from those of us from rich countries with privileged lives who can travel 
anywhere we want at almost any time, who can order anything instantaneously on the internet and have mm. it arrive at our doorstep, who have been living with you know variable degrees of progressive values. Perhaps we recycle, perhaps we give charitably to the vulnerable, perhaps we worry about climate change, but so far we haven't really seriously changed the way we live, right? And this is a wake-up call for the earth. If we're to continue living as a species, we've got to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. crises are also a really big opportunity. We've seen some countries resorting to really visionary, progressive measures like nationalizing private hospitals or state-supervising face mask operations or all of a sudden doing these things that, you know, only the leftist of the left imagined could happen in the United States, like suspending rent, mortgage, and utilities payments, thinking about housing for everybody and more egalitarian distribution of goods, expanding and democratizing education by online opportunities. All of these things happen much more quickly during a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Authoritarianism, which can feel comforting, like right now in Morocco, we have a more of an authoritarian approach to virus mitigation, and it does feel comforting in this time of great anxiety and uncertainty and a a deep knowledge that if this virus isn't controlled, it's going to completely wreak havoc on this health system and cause hundreds and hundreds and thousands of deaths here in Morocco. But... Politicians can also exploit these times of crisis to push through their agendas without the proper checks and balances. So we have to be careful of these unintended consequences of authoritarianism, right? Like Mm -hmm. in Korea, some of the ingenious ways that they did very effective contact tracing was they would seize your phone, look at the contacts, figure out by GPS where you've been, use these cameras to figure out who would come in close proximity with you and then warn them to look for symptoms and to self-quarantine, etc. But imagine that now the government, or maybe worse, private organizations, can do this at a time of non-crisis, at a time when we're not dealing with a pandemic. What's that going to mean for us? Meanwhile, in the United States, you have politicians who are also exploiting the crisis Um, like Trump, militarizing the border, right? This gives him his perfect excuse with the wall with Mexico and making it a truly military border. Or you have these conservative politicians in states like Texas and Ohio who are now saying abortion is suddenly not necessarily an essential medical procedure and imposing their anti-abortion agenda on people because they're taking advantage of this political crisis to do so when nobody's checking them. So there can be a lot of negative unintended consequences of these authoritarian responses that will actually later exacerbate the problems of society. I mean, we saw this after 9-11, right? Mm -hmm. We saw our civil liberties and our human rights sacrificed in the name of, you know, terrorism prevention. We saw this with the 2008 financial collapse and our response to it was actually to perpetuate more wealth inequity right so masha gessen in the new yorker just pointed this out recently 
that, you know, all of that is going to be child's play compared to this coronavirus pandemic response if we don't check these authoritarian reactions. And listen, China is in a very happy place right now. They've survived the great catastrophe, at least for now. It's proven to the world that its more authoritarian approach has been more effective than the democratic one, right? In controlling the epidemic, now they're in a position to provide aid. So we're in a country with, you know, supposed freedom of press and individual liberties, and we've reacted almost helplessly and ridiculously to this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So authoritarianism one, <laughs> democracy zero on this. Um, the other completely surprising thing is how quickly these democratic societies have gone, and with good rationale, have gone the Chinese route to controlling spreading of the virus. You mean in Western Europe and places like France and Germany and Spain? Mm-hmm. And even, and even the United States, yeah. states like California mm -hmm. and Washington. I mean, here we are basically under house arrest in Morocco. We can go out once a week for groceries or to get medical care or if we have an essential job. But honestly, we're not allowed out. We're not even allowed on our rooftops mm. because people were violating the rules there and congregating. It's a very it's an intensely social and relational country. Yeah, Nassim, that's really curious. I mean, what's interesting about what you're saying is this is something that none of us can escape. And if we're all going to suffer from this idea of collective trauma, we actually have to implement collective sacrifice. Mm -hmm. We have to give up the things that we want for the greater good. And in the context of the United States, that's deeply, deeply difficult because it's not part of the American identity. That's mm -hmm. what's really curious about it, right? That's right. But maybe it's going to shift people do come together in times of great crisis too. There are many silver linings to this <laughs> pandemic disaster. And perhaps we will re-examine how we live and the changes will be for the better. That's entirely possible. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is one of my dear friends said that this pandemic is a divinely imposed season of reflection. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just making us reflect on the things that we've been doing with our lives and wondering whether or not it's good or bad, right? It's a great place to kind of really just stop, embrace this idea of silence and have this sense of uncertainty really just help us better recalibrate, right? Now, and that's only if you are among the privileged yeah. who have a place, right, where they can shelter in place, where they can afford to physically distance. Because as you know, much of the world particularly in the global South, but even in the United States with its incredible homelessness problem, there is no possibility of stopping, of being safe, of being able to reflect. Mm -hmm. That time to think is really a privileged person's option. And I think that's right. So as somebody like yourself who's worked in the space of humanitarian aid, what are the voices that aren't being shared that need to be? Well, I don't, think that people are hearing enough from the marginalized, from refugees, from those in war-torn places, from those who are even stateless. This is both the horrible and the beautiful thing about this virus, which is that if we have this virus anywhere, because of our globalized planet now, it will be everywhere, <laughs> right? So unless we 
live in this constant state of closed borders and um, not going out, we have to deal with this virus everywhere and help those who are unable to do it on their own. Yeah. Back to your point of, for the privileged, though, I wanted to share a quote with you that I thought you might like. For those of us privileged enough to take a moment to reflect, which, by the way, even the privileged people who are on the front lines don't have this time. I mean, health providers, clinicians, grocery store workers, garbage workers, all of these people who are really on the front lines of this are working harder than ever before and don't have a chance to stop and reflect. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who have the privilege of working from home and may have more time, Mm -hmm. I came upon this quote that I love, which says, when you press the pause button on a machine, it stops. But when you press the pause button on human beings, they start. That's by Robert Poynton. I think that's a great way to come to a wrap-up for this conversation. I'd love to ask you one more question here, Nassim, if I'm permitted. Absolutely. You've done many things in your life. I'm curious to know what exactly is your message for the world based on the things you've experienced and the things that you value near and dear to your heart? Mm, No pressure. (laughs) Well, in the context of this current crisis, I think kindness and human relations and thinking about and trying to take care of the vulnerable or the marginalized are going to be some pretty core values that we need to take care of all of us. And in fact, in doing that, we will be taking care of ourselves as well. Because even a person in a very unequal society who is at the top of the hierarchy is going to suffer because of those inequities. And so it's not only the right thing to do to care about each other, but it's the smart thing to do. So that's one core value is kindness and and looking out for the weaker um, members of our society. Mm -hmm. The second message I have for people, especially such as yourself, who are endlessly curious and storytellers and people who are seekers and, and exploring what they might do next, is that in this age of subspecialization and narrow silos, we've forgotten the benefits of approaching our work as amateurs, as generalists. An amateur just means lover of. So my own journey has been one of intellectual promiscuity. And I think that if others also embrace the amateur approach with curiosity and humility and openness and a sense of possibility, amazing things can happen. So I would encourage people to take sabbaticals. I would encourage people to invest in themselves and reflect and discover what it is that they truly want to do in the world and what it is that the world needs of them. Mm -hmm. And then reorganize if they can, if they're in the privileged position to be able to pause um, and restart their lives, figure out how they can be of value to their collective community and how they can explore what their heart yearns to explore. 
Nassim, that's wonderful. I think you are a walking embodiment of all the things that you value and that you've just shared with us. So I personally just want to thank you for the work that you do, the stories that you tell, and the voices that you try to uplift. So you're an inspiration, and I appreciate you for it. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. You're utterly kind and generous, and it's been a real pleasure talking with you. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H. A-H-A-D-I dot com. <laughs>